Welcome back to Squinting at the Good with Nemec and Trox. This is Trox. This is Nemec. How's it going, Trox? It's going okay. Not too bad. You know, the night's night's going along. It's been a good day. Been been a good, good week. Day. It's not bad. It's, it's a good day. What, what what constitutes a good day? Well, I'm, so, I mean, I'm not I'm not I'm not asking for your, speci- for your specifics. I'm asking what constitutes a good a good day day. A not a day. good so a good day. A good day. Well, yeah. I like a good day when you know. You look back on it, and you feel good about it. That's oh, what I think a good day is. So it's all about your... It's your, all about the feels, man. It's all about your feelings? No, not really. So I think a good day is when a, a day that uh, you acted virtuously. And so you acted with excellence. And so whenever there was something going on that was aggravating, you handled it well. You you know, you fought the dragon for the day. You faced you faced your, your difficulty at work and you came out victoriously or at least you died trying and you know you uh you acted with honor yeah that's a good day that's a good day for you well, that's a good day for anyone okay let's well, okay it's a good day you know i think uh you know how some people say it's, it's a great day they'll say that about every yeah, day yeah, yeah, yeah. do you think it's true that every day is a good day uh no no why not well so it depends people can act not good on days <laughs> which would make it for them, a bad day. So the goodness of a day is subjective. So, but I think I think what you're I think what you're uh, implying here is that a day can be good apart from the people, you know, acting in the day. Is that what you're Is that what you're getting at? I am indeed. But okay. any idea well, why? Any idea why? What's up? Any any idea why? Um, no, no idea why. Oh come on! I I can't. I have no idea. Well, think about well, think about theologically, right? The beginning, the book of Genesis. Okay. God made day and God made night. Yes. And God looked back at what he did and he said it was good. Yes. Why did God say that good, that day was good? Well, he said the night was good too. Well, yeah, okay. But we're talking about days. We're not talking about nights. Well, it's creation. Creation's good. Right. Yeah. Why is creation good though? Well, so there's the easy answer, which is kind of a cop-out. And there's probably a more philosophically rigorous answer, which mm-hmm. I'm sure we will probe for. But the uh, the easy answer is that, well, because God made it, and God makes good things. Okay. Therefore, uh, yeah. it's, you know, logistically it's, it's something good. It's, okay, well, okay, this this could bring up the whole Euthyphro question. It's something, something good because God makes it, so God says it's good, or something good, and God agrees. I, for one, do not follow... So, so in philosophy, there's a... Uh, there's a... There's a, a variety of theories about whether how something is good. I subscribe to the idea of uh, natural law in which a thing's goodness is inherent within the thing and it constitutes a well-ordering of parts or proper proportions. Um, and so I would say that the day can be good, exhibit goodness, apart from simply being created by God. For instance, as a obvious argument, we were created by God, so that would mean we are good by the same logical argument. Um, however, we all know that we can choose to do bad things, which maybe don't make us bad, but presumably we did bad things. And so, you know, I, I'd like to come up to a more rigorous definition. No, so so the, let's uh, think about this. Why is why is everything that God made good? Because it's a reflection of his being. Because it's a reflection of his being. But when you look at it more simply, it's because it is. It is being. Everything everything that is created is in the act of being, right? Yes, it exists. Right? It and which reflects God's ultimate so is, being. So is non being bad? 
And, you know, in a certain sense, it's, okay. well, yeah. it's, so, so, it's not good. It's ba- it's bad in the sense that it's not good. It's so a privation I think, I think of the good. Here's a good. Here's a good point. We need to define terms, which for all you young soapbox philosophers at home, the first thing you always need to do is define your terms. So evil is not something that exists at all. It does not exist. It is a lack of something that does exist or should exist, which is goodness. And so evil is a privation which is a fancy philosophical word meaning lack of the good. And so when you're saying that everything is a struggle between good and evil, that's really not true. It's really things are a struggle between good and there really isn't anything. There isn't evil that's something that exists. Well, that's, that's, that's in your philosophical system. Well, yes, of course. I mean, Listen, I mean, I mean, this is, it's a co-podcast, so, you know. Well, I mean, I happen to agree with you, but I'm just saying that for any of our Gnostic or listeners out there, or many, if we have any Zor- Zoroastrian listeners, you know, you might, you might disagree with our philosophical system. That's true. But. That's true. In our, in our philosophical system, evil is something that does not exist in a positive sense as it is something, but it is rather a lack of something. So... Yeah, that's the, the the assuming context that uh, presumably this discussion will. We haven't really framed it, but presumably this discussion will be based on. Yeah, well, the 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 what well, I just want to reflect on the fact that creation is good. Creation is being. Being itself is a transcendental quality. Well, yes. Okay. So right? so, it's one. Right. Everything yes. that is being is one, and that means everything that is being is one is true is good. Is good. And beautiful. And beautiful. Correct. And because everything is being, everything is necessarily good. That it's sounds... simple. It's simple equivocation yes. of transcendental terms. Yeah, of course. Okay. I would agree with you. That is logically sound. So you can... So as long as it's being, you can say in some sense... In some sense. There might be some senses in which it's bad. But in some sense, it's good, I would think. So the fact that it exists indicates at least in a part, it's goodness. Right. Okay. Which so, is, which is, and this is because the goodness of, the goodness is, uh, the goodness of God is what sustains the being of everything. Now, at once. I, we're going to, we're going to get into the fun, the fun notion of this discussion. So that would make sense in the present when it actually exists. Does yesterday still exist? Does yesterday still exist? Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. So, I see it in three senses. First sense, physically, no. It, it is in the past. In the past, used to exist and no longer exists. Um, we follow a 24-hour solar cycle, which would show us that uh, the rising of the new sun references a new day, which would mean the old day has passed and no longer exists. Um, however, I remember what yesterday was, and so it exists in my mind. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay. But that existence is different than its physical existence, right? Right. Because it's my experiences, which are different than your experiences. And so it's, I guess you could call it a more subjective existence of the day. Right. In, in that it has specifics that are different between people and, and uh, maybe still objectives. Maybe subjective is not the, not the right term, but a uh, narrowed view. I wouldn't say, I, w- I mean, I think you have to say it's subjective because... Uh, at a, because my my understanding of yesterday is not the same as your understanding of yesterday, and I don't know. Sometimes we can get things wrong in our remembrance. No, this is of true. Things. This is true. Our memory is not perfect. And so then, 
presumably the last sense in which yesterday could still exist would be in the mind of God. And that gets into a, a much more deeply yeah. metaphysical subject. I don't, so, think, I don't think we can uh, talk about that. Uh, well, not with any real knowledge. No. Not with any real knowledge. So, so maybe as a backup, um, I've, something... I've, Something that I think this podcast is centered around, and we have, we have woefully been inept at describing the precise details of what this podcast will be going forward, but something that Aristotle described was the notion of scientific knowledge, which was knowledge of a thing in its entirety, or near entirety anyway. Really? Yes. I always thought scientific knowledge was knowledge of the cause. Well, knowledge, is, uh, knowledge of a thing from its... Four causes. No, not just four causes from its causes, but its universal causes. So um, basically the idea is that there are some things that are uh, not requiring proof, and we would call those self-evident premises or things that are inherently true, or Aristotle uses the term first principles. And so a lot of times you'll hear his idea of scientific knowledge as knowledge coming from first principles. And so some things that are first principles the easiest way to describe those from a philosophical standpoint are phrases that once you understand what the words that can uh, make up the phrase mean, you automatically know its truthfulness. A lot of this comes in with definitions. And so, for instance, if we define bachelor as an unmarried man, if I told you all bachelors are unmarried men, you would say to me, well, yes, obviously, right? And so from that sense, a very simplified idea we could then maybe make logical inferences based on the nature of bachelor if we, as we've defined it. And then insofar as our original definition, our original understanding is accurate, our first principle is accurate, we can actually get real knowledge that we can link back a perfect logical chain to something we know is absolutely true. So we can arrive at true knowledge. And so that's the way Aristotle described Right, isn't that, causal, isn't that causal knowledge? Yeah, it's causal because knowledge you're... back to something that you know for sure is real. So the first right. cause, you could say it from knowledge of its four causes, but that only gives you a link in the chain, not the whole chain. Um, so I think something that we, tr we strive to do in this podcast, at least when we're trying to logically analyze something, is do it in some sense of, uh, of its entirety or its wholeness from kind of the very, the very beginning and the most broad to the most specific. And so having framed the idea of the good day, where would you like to go with it? Yeah, well, actually, you know, just, just sort of analyze what we just did there in the sense of do you ever regret studying philosophy? Do I ever regret studying philosophy? I would say no, insofar as it has given me a different way of looking at the world than the person next to me who hasn't studied philosophy. That being said, I count myself lucky to have studied philosophy that I think is actually true, and um, that even if I only maybe think it's true, has given me a very rigorous and tested way of looking at the world. I think if somebody studied philosophy and they didn't study the history of philosophy or uh, some of the ancient Greek philosophers, but only, say, if, if your whole philosophical knowledge was you went to a, a, a large public university and you majored in philosophy and you studied uh, Husserl, Foucault, and uh, Burke. Those were the only people you knew. I'm not really sure. Maybe, maybe you could throw in Hume in there. I really don't think that you would come out of that really knowing much of anything. And if you did, you certainly wouldn't be able to use those theories and apply them universally or to changing dynamic situations in your life. So I think that they're just niche kind of fringe ideas 
that those thinkers represent and that I think it's significantly less useful than trying to uh, really give you a good ground ontology for how you're going to go about analyzing things in your life. What about you? Do you regret uh, studying theology? Well, actually, I was still thinking about philosophy. I was thinking, did I because stu I studied philosophy and theology, but did do I regret studying philosophy? And to a certain extent, yes. Oh, why? Why extent, so? Yes. Why? Because there are other things that I didn't end up studying. Oh, like what? One thing in particular. Poetry. 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 Well, so this is ironic, because in the Apology, and in the Republic, Plato goes... Multiple places. Mul multiple places. Plato goes out of his way to throw a fair amount of shade on the poets, and uh, definitely indicated that they, uh, he did not think the poets had any sort of usefulness to a society at no, no, all. No, 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 no. You're wrong there. I'm you're wrong. You're wrong there. I'm wrong. Plato okay. didn't think that they weren't useful. He thought that they were dangerous. Thought they were dangerous. Well, he thought they were dangerous. So Socrates and the Apology thought that they were kind of not, didn't really know anything. And then in the Republic, Plato goes and says that we need to control what the poets say because they're dangerous. And so in that sense... In that sense, you're right. But, but why are they dangerous? Because they write catchy lyrics to some sick rap beats. Because, at a certain extent, they represent a threat to the philosophers because they have a different method of accessing the mystery of being. Okay, so how does, how does a poet reference... The mystic of being. So, well, the, so, the mystery of being. Mystery of being. So, well, first of all, what, how does a philosopher do it? What does a philosopher do? Well. What does a philosopher do? He does several things, depending on what school of philosophy you follow. Okay, well, we're talking about your school. We're talking My about... School. okay. We're talking okay. about a traditional Aristotelian, Thomistic sort of... Yeah, platonic uh, sense. Platonic sense yeah. of okay. philosopher. Uh, so that philosopher goes and makes observations of the physical world, and then seeks to understand them from first principles and so makes a, a nice little chain of causes to try to explain something wholly and entirely to gain true knowledge right and so the what does he use to do that logic most of the time uh yeah so uh logos uh in logos logos okay we're talking about greek pronunciation really who's correcting i don't know anything about greek <laughs> it's like i don't know anything about latin we yes make, we, we, yeah. we make up for each other's own inadequacies well, maybe we're yeah but uh so it's so logos in yes. Greek. Uh, the Latin term used for this is ratio or ratio. So so side, sidebar, what's the difference between ratio and noose in, nous. in Latin? Because both for, for our noose is Greek. Is nous, I, thought, I thought noose was, was, was Latin. No. Never mind. We have solved the conundrum. One is Greek, one is Latin. Continue. Ratio. Well, what does noose mean then? I mean, I, know, I, I think I know what noose means. What does it mean? Uh, so my understanding was that noose meant, I thought it was Latin, of course, but I thought <laughs> noose meant the act of the mind um, kind of as your mind, whereas the logos, while it could represent mind, definitely more represented the ideas and less the kind of the will of the mind or the act of the mind. but Oh, it's interesting. There is a, a much more nuanced description and difference. Yeah, when I, I, meant, by, when I meant by reason, when I meant by ratio, uh, I thought I thought Logos described in terms of... Re, uh, ratio is, the, yeah, the activity of the mind in terms of 
you know, you're using reason. You're, yeah, you're actively, you're actively pursuing truth. Yes. Okay. Right. Um, one of my favorite uh, philosophers is a guy named Joseph Pieper, and he points out the distinction between ratio mm-hmm. and intellectus. Okay, both Latin terms. Both Latin terms. I'm not sure what the core the correlative intellectus in uh, Greek is. Um, yeah, I'm not positive. That might be news. There might be there right. might be a way. And to both do that. both are both are involved in the philosophical act, but intellectus is actually in the traditional in the traditional views intellectus is actually more important than ratio. Uh, so what is intellectus? Intellectus is your ability to receive truth. Okay. It's it's a receptive power. Okay. Right. It's so basically your ability to receive reality and understand truth from it. Right. Okay. So and this roughly correlates to what you were saying with in terms of observation. Right. Mm-hmm. So observation to a certain extent is I mean is kind of a passive process. Right. Sure. You allow reality to come to you, unveil itself before you, and from that you use you know your you, the active processes of your mind. You use your reason to sort of put things together yes right? there is a very a very cool and deeply abstract way aristotle describes how we come in contact with knowledge um which maybe for a uh, a later podcast when some of our listeners have gotten their philosophical feet a little bit more wet we can get to honestly think, some of our listeners probably have better philosophical feet than us well so. hopefully, hopefully hopefully some of our because because our, our we're only squinting at the good Hopefully, some of our listeners are, are fully gazing. Fully gazing. Fully gazing. Yes. Yeah, so, in so much as that's possible. Uh, the world comes in contact with our mind and shapes it, and we have knowledge through this through this type of of, of epistemology. Right. And so, but and so, th- you might say that in you were you were making a distinction between the the moderns, right? Mm-hmm. Roughly speaking, post Cartesian philosophy. Yes. And pre Cartesian philosophy. Absolutely. Uh, and you you can make that you can make you can make that distinction. That distinction is very important. And I'd say that pre-Cartesian philosophers, right before the thought of the when was he, sixteenth-century French philosopher Rene Descartes, yes, um, was more it was intellectus was more important versus post-Cartesian philosophy, where the active powers of the brain were out there to dissect reality, right. Uh, actually, Francis Bacon. Francis Bacon probably was the progenitor of this sort of. Yes, view and of... Francis Bacon was slightly before Rene Descartes. Was he? Was he before? Serves. From my my understanding is uh, he was. They're rough. They're, Thirty to fifty years before. They're, they're roughly contemporaries. They're rough, rough contemporaries. Rough yes. contemporaries. Anyways, and so De, uh, Descartes said things like, "We need to be able to use our knowledge so that we can become masters and possessors of nature." Yes, right? that was one Act, of the actively seeking control over reality. Yes, right. whereas the previous philosophers did not seek to control, and I think they probably would have even laughed at the idea of control, they wanted uh, merely to understand nature. And so you, with a, the, there's a Cartesian shift between wanting to understand and wanting to control, master, and possess. And so from one sense, you can say that you know, the true master of the knowledge is one that can make use of the knowledge and then you know, creates things and tools to... Uh, manipulate nature in a way that serves him. Right. But they would argue that the ancients would definitely argue that that is very different from wisdom and that that is very different from the love of wisdom or philosophy. Right. And so well, philosophy happens through, in, in the ancient sense, through this act of receptivity yes. to reality. Right. Definitely. In the, the de- Plato would definitely wholeheartedly agree with you. 
Um, Aristotle, maybe. Aristotle, Aristotle would definitely say that the active mind has more of a component, but uh, Plato would definitely say 100% we're receptives of the form, we're receivers of the forms, and, and that's how we have knowledge, and that's how we do everything. Right, and so we would characterize this sort of receptivity, this active receptivity, or this existence of receptivity, as fundamentally wondering, right? Yes, I wonder. I wonder. I, I I was wondering about this. You know, I would say I would say that in in this in that sense of the English word wonder, that's what it means. I think that you can also wonder at something as 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 marveling or amazing or or uh, standing in awe of and not intellectually dissecting. I think they're actually. I think they're actually one and the same. How so? I think that uh, the, the 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 act of being awestruck. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, which isn't I. I'd say awe is slightly different than wonder. Sure, I think sure. awe has more of a, a of a connotation of respect. But the but the the act of wondering of you know being amazed, etc., is is the first step, right? Okay. That that is that is the first step in the process of receiving the reality, right? Uh, Joseph Pieper uses the term of an existential disturbance. That's fascinating. Yeah. Having 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 um, having reality first sort of come into you like yeah. disturbs you and you're like wow wow that's like you're you're amazed at reality and slowly as you receive it you're able to you know incorporate it into your mind you're able to process it using your rational abilities and you're able to bring it down to such domestic level as I was wondering. So that, but you never quite but you never quite leave behind that every now and then you'll 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 still have that moment of being awestruck that moment of of wonder being taken to the level of a disturbance. So that reminds me a lot of Plato's allegory of the cave when he describes the when he describes the newly minted philosopher having been drug out of the depths of the cave in the republic into the light of the sun um you know, you could also just, you could, he says that the person is blinded by the light and his eyes hurt because it's adjusting to the light from the darkness. Mm-hmm. But you could look at that and it's an allegory, so you can apply allegorical meaning to it and say that that's the same idea as trying to, is being awestruck such that it is overwhelming your senses and you have an sort of an inability to see and inability to understand, right? Using the, the sight metaphor as, as knowledge, then therefore you would, be able to apply that and say that for Plato, he would definitely agree with Pieper and say that, yeah, you're, you're struck with the idea of knowledge so much so that it overwhelms your senses. Uh, and I think Plato would agree with him on, on that, on that point. Yeah. So why, why do I bring this up? Uh, and why did I say that I regret studying philosophy to a certain extent? Obviously I love studying philosophy because that's where I experience a sense of wonder. Yes. And why did I mention poetry specifically as something I would have liked to study? Yes. It's because what, it's funny, I'm using a philosopher to explain why I kind of wish I'd studied other things more. Not that I didn't study these things, but I wish I, I wish I had dedicated more time to study these things. And I probably, I got plenty of time left. I can, I can. Yeah, your, your life is young. Yeah. I can, yeah. St- I can still study this stuff. This is true. I can still study this stuff. But it's that this form of philosophic wondering yes is not the only way which we can have an, an existential disturbance which first allows us to experience reality absolutely 
But I think it I think it benefits the person to study philosophy oh, in this way because oh. it makes them more receptive to these. Oh yeah, I definitely, I definitely, I de no, I definitely, I definitely agree. Everyone should study philosophy, and I think that that it, that it is good. But I think that there are, but the philosophers tend to be a little, <laughs> a little proud sometimes. Oh sure, and there's a, a dismiss, fair amount of pride. Dismiss other dismiss other forms of existential disturbance, which still uh, are good for men so so bringing this back to your initial initial inquiry how does this relate to the day being good is there was there a poetic sense that you were looking at it oh. and uh expecting yeah. me of course to jump on the philosophic sense yeah so this is this is interesting so one way the, the one way that you can that you can acknowledge the the, the way uh poetry accesses reality right is philosophy's wondering is oriented towards discovery of truth sure poetry's i don't know i don't know is it poetry attempting beauty that's what i think i don't know i haven't i haven't read anything so, about so this, this is but... interesting if we want to if we want to backtrack in case people have not listened to earlier episodes there are these things called transcendentals and uh i believe plato was the first one to really talk about them in, an, in a comprehensive way. But the, some of the other pre-Socratic philosophers mentioned pieces of, of some, and you could, you could look at Plato's work as kind of joining together a little bit of the, a little bit of, of the work of, of other pre-Socratic pre philosophers in this sense. And he said that there were these things that were transcendent. They existed above our physical reality. Um, though for Plato, he says they still exist as actual substances, which is a, 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 a notion that other philosophers will disagree with him on. But basically, these transcendentals are all equivalent in their perfected state. And he says that there are four of them. Uh, the one, the good, the true, and the beautiful. He said that at the perfected state of the one, it's true, it's good, and it's beautiful. And, and the same can be said for all of them. And I think you're right. I think that philosophy, searching for truth, is seems perfectly to line up. Philosophy searches for truth through logic, through reasoning, through coming into contact with things and searching for knowledge. And it would seem that poetry searches for beauty and tries to capture beauty and yeah. to transmit beauty, maybe, is, right. is, even, is even more we could say. And, and poetry is uh, obviously just one example. It's probably, it, it's probably the example par excellence. Uh, the ancients could, have been using it, you have been experiencing poetry forever. But I think you can extend this to other forms of art, other forms of aesthetic pursuits, uh, drama, literature, music, um, um, painting, etc. So I know that maybe a good way to describe the, the transcendental nature of these types of works is that it, the reception of it, say if you're listening to a song or reading a book, uh, occasionally you will find yourself transcending your physical body. And part of that's through our imagination, sure. But I remember there have been several times where I've been reading a book and I have been, I was reading it in a coffee shop and I was reading it. And this doesn't happen often, but there was one author in particular that's happened several times with several of his books where I'd be reading it and I would realize that I was in the story and I was reading it, but I don't remember actually reading anything. Like normally, it's actually really funny. People used to read aloud and they never read in their head. And then um, <laughs> Augustine uh, saw uh, one of the one of the Catholic saints, um, Ambrose. Ambrose, who was sitting under a tree, looking at a book, reading silently in his head, as now he would say it. And he thought he was crazy because he wasn't reading aloud. And he went over and said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm reading. 
And Augustine said, no, you're not. You're not reading aloud, and you're not, you're not saying anything. And Ambrose said, oh, I'm reading in my head. And that completely and totally shattered Augustine's <laughs> mind to little bits, and he was like, oh, yeah, my gosh. I remember that story no a little bit different. That. Yeah, I remember that story a little bit differently, but yes. Yeah. Yes. And so when I was reading this, I don't actually remember seeing the words or reading the words. I just remember the story, and I remember being so engulfed in the story that I looked up, because I was kind of hunched over reading, and looking up and not knowing how much time had passed, or, I mean, I remembered where I was, and I obviously could see where I was, but I had truly felt like I had been elevated beyond my physical existence. And I think other people can say that with, yeah. with various experiences with either art or drama. You know, they'll stare at a piece of art, and they'll just lose themselves, and they'll stare yeah. at it for hours. I think, and I think you, can even, you can even say this anywhere beauty's found. So, oh, yeah. I, so, think, I think the in con when coming in contact with the beauty... Right. So poetry is a very good way of, of receiving the reality of beauty, but, for instance... Um, in a, there's a, there's a, there's a philosopher named Roger Scruton and he makes the comment that, uh, when you look at a baby, sure. you don't, you, you don't want to, you don't want to like use the baby. You don't want to like, no, you know, of course not. have the, you want to, you want to just, you just look at it and you appreciate the baby for sort of its natural sort of beauty. Uh, and in a certain sense, you're probably also wondering you're wondering about the mystery sure. of human life. And so there's, there's in some ways, right, the experience of, of life both touches, you know, the aesthetic sense yeah. and the, and the, the, the um, truthful sense. I'm not sure. Yeah, sure. Use. You, you use the that. truthful sense yeah. uh, of reality. They both access, you know, these, these transcendentals. So, so I, I like this idea of the transcendentals and, and if we continue it along, so we've, we have the arts or that which is searching for beauty. We have philosophy, and, and you can also include science. That's what's searching for truth, um, at least in, in, in the sense of, of actual science that's based on trying to find out the real nature of things and not just uh, possible mm -hmm. theories. Um, and then presumably at that point, we have two transcendentals left that we would need to classify <laughs> human actions. So yeah. we, would have, we would have the one, and we would have the good. And it would seem to me that uh, the good is the easier of the two to, to talk about. And so the good... Really? Um, oh yes, for sure. Okay. So, 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 I would, so I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. I think the one is pretty obvious. Oh, okay. okay. So what's no, what's no, the no, one? no. Do do the good first because I want to reveal the for good. the one. Oh, okay, good. okay, okay, okay. So, I it would seem to me that following from how Aristotle described the good, he described it as acting in accordance with virtue, and of course he defined virtue as acting in accordance with reason, and reason we already kind of talked about. And so, if we're trying to if we're trying to act reasonable towards truth, we're going to obviously be acting towards the other transcendentals as well. But he said the way that we actually are virtuous is by doing virtuous things. And so it would seem that the good is most properly found in our actions. We do good things, right? We have good days. We make days good, so to speak. Right. Now, we've talked about whether the day is good separate from human action, of course, but it would seem that the... Beauty and truth, maybe we find receptive to the human person that we receive these things, and it would seem that we actually, in some sense, produce goodness through good actions. No, 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 no. Your good, your good actions are what allow you to receive the reality of goodness found in the world. Ah, okay. So they bring the the uh, potential goodness in the world to actual actuality. Right. Okay. Uh, maybe I'm I'm not sure about that. Okay. But anyways. Uh, what is the what is the example of good par excellence? Uh, I don't have an idea off the top of my head. 
Oh, do you okay. have one. That's I do. On the tip of I your do tongue? too. I mean, I'm I, it's, I'm cheating. I'm stealing this from Joseph Pieper. Ah, uh, <laughs> you're stealing from Joseph. Well, Pieper I mean, actually, again. this has been helpful because I've been thinking about this for the past couple of days. Uh, I read this. I read all this in uh, Joseph Pieper's book. Uh, several of his books. So I've read a yes, couple. Yeah, yeah, I've, yeah. I've been reading selections from him over the course for the past couple of weeks, and. And so I'm sort of fitting some of this together. Sure. But he mentions other types of existential disturbances. Okay. So, and one of and and one way that we are existentially disturbed is in the act of worshiping. Okay. Right. Yeah. And so if we say that if we say that, you know, good you know that goodness is acting in accordance with you know, virtue virtue yeah which is in reference to the true the good etc yeah the ultimate truth the ultimate good is the existence of God sure. Right? Yes. God is. Yes. Right? Yes. And so what is worship other than us as creation? Yes. Signaling our assent to the re- to the truth of the reality that God is good, God is above us, God is, you know, the ultimate transcendental reality. This is a good point. Right? And we would be doing this through our actions. Right. Our actions of worship him. Yes, but but that would be all of our actions well, that are directed n- well, towards n- the good, n- right? Well, no, actually, I mean, in in a way, the, the I mean, maybe in a way that all of our actions glorify God. This is a very well, no, 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 but very... all of the actions that are directed towards the good or goodness, right? I mean, there's are I acts mean, of worship I towards mean, God. There's a sense in which that's true, but I'm really, I mean, I'm really thinking about acts which we really mean it, we really okay. intend it. I'm speaking in in Catholic terms. This is the liturgy. Okay. This is uh, this is worshiping the Lord in His holiness. Sure. Uh, you know, um, which includes singing, which include you know the sacrifice, other, which includes other forms prayer. of transcendental prayer experiences. Well, the, yeah, these are all these are all existential these are all existential disturbances, right? Yeah. These things shake us up. Our act of worshiping God through through sacrifice, through through you know words, exhortations adoration right yeah gestures right things that we do in liturgy right allow us to res- to res- to to most fundamentally assent to and receive reality okay um, that seems that seems like a reasonable interpretation i think i would still push that it's most prominently through our actions but well, I, I think that's reasonable i think you i think the part about actions actually comes more to do with the one I I actually had a, a differing view. Well, well, go ahead and present it. Go ahead so and present my, it. When, when, I, when I thought when I thought I, I thought one was pretty easy, because the one, this goes back to the very beginning, the one is simply the act of being. Ah, I see. That is much more profound than what I was thinking. Right, of. and you were and you were thinking and when, when you said all actions in some way. Well, yeah, all actions do because all actions are so you part would wrap of those, being. You would wrap those up closer to being with the one. Yeah. Okay. Which I mean, and in a way, that's the same as. Well, it is the same. It is the same. You yeah. know, from a transcendental standpoint, from the transcendental, it is the same. Right. Yeah, it's equivalent terms. Right. So and so there's a way in which just our acting, our being in the world, right, is. Uh, is 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 a existential disturbance, but the problem is we experience it all the time, right? And therefore, well, so I mean, when I mean, you when you first brought up the idea of this topic, uh, there were four things that went into my head. The first was that okay, the arts represent beauty, philosophy, science represents truth, uh, our acts of goodness, which is ethics, practical wisdom, represent the good, and then that left the one. Being, just being itself, 
is extremely clever, and I want to unpack that more. But what occurred to me was something that was more of a mystical experience. And so if we think of, if we think of the totality of human existence, we've described, it, we've described science, we've described the arts, we've described our actions and, and how they're directed. Human activities, yeah. Human activities. And <coughs> it would seem that the thing that's left is mystical experiences or mystical activities. Right. When we're trying to distance ourselves from our own individuality and become oh, part of the one. Yeah. So maybe there's a way we can create some sort of synthesis here, because I think at, at the root of it, we're saying the same thing, but I, there's a, a slight difference. But so I was thinking from a, from a mystical perspective, um, I, I like to turn to the Catholic mystic, uh, John of the Cross, and he, ironically enough, discusses most of his mystical wisdom through poetry, which huh. is... You know, that's that's, that's rich. Is, is is much is, there's much humor humor there given that uh, we're trying to <laughs> differentiate the different transcendental nature of, of the different human actions and, and here we are talking about poetry <laughs> to learn mysticism but he describes mystical experiences through the use of poetry and he the way he describes the idea of a, of a mystical experience in his poem uh, the dark night of the soul is that there is a person who is utterly devoid of light he's completely shrouded in darkness and of course there's a lot of allegorical sense that you can take that to mean sin or ignorance or evil or discomfort or oppression or depression there's plenty of ways you can you can kind of view yourself as the person in the in the poem if if one is attempting to and he emphasized that the the more we were able to turn down the world the more we were able to distance ourselves from all of the things that the world was offering us, which would include things like science and the arts and truth and all, you know, not necessarily truth, but those specific actions that we would be more in tune to be able to experience God. That that's when he was the brightest and the loudest was when we couldn't hear anything at all. And uh, when you talk to mystics and not even... Uh, you know, irrespective of, uh, of religion, they almost always tell you that you need to start by being quiet and listening. And that a lot of mystical experiences occur when you are attempting to be as quiet and as still as possible. If we go to the idea of uh, nirvana for um, the Buddhists, I believe. It, it, nirvana is, is for the Buddhists. Yeah, right? I think so. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think it's the Buddhists uh, who, who are attempting to achieve that. It's a state of enlightenment that's totally detached from the world, right? Where you... Uh, become part of this something that's greater than you. And so and that, that was what was jumping into my head, was that the one was when you were distancing yourself from your individuality and you were trying to listen to be, to be closer to God. Now, of course, uh, this is the funniness where uh, the transcendentals are all the same. And when you're <laughs> saying, well, just being, when you're just, you exist, and by your act of existing, um, you could say existence qua existence, that you are embracing the one and, 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 and achieve, you know, striving towards the one. And I think that that's true insofar as you are not behaving as an individual. When you're behaving as an individual, you're separating yourself from the one, or at least a little bit. And that uh, when you're trying to focus on the act of being itself and what it means to just exist, the mystic would say you need to just be quiet and listen for the worlds and feel existence around you, right? As I'm sure a phrase that people have people have said and heard. And so in that sense, you would just be being. You would be existing. Yeah. And that by existing, 
you'd be participating in the one and you would be maybe coming into contact with the one except that wouldn't really be a thing you'd, you'd be experiencing oneness i think you wouldn't really be uh, coming into contact with the one so to speak but so going back to a day being good so what does it mean to be a good day have a good day <laughs> now that we've kind of outlined this sort of transcendent uh human human interrelationship well, I mean, so we already discussed how it's good in the aspect of being. Um, yes. In its relation. To the fact that it exists. And it's the fact part that it of the exists. one. There you go. It's part of the one. Sure. Uh, I mean, we can talk about, we already talked about it from, we can understand it from a beautiful perspective. Yes. The, the day works toward, uh, the day involved beauty. Yeah. Um, now, some might say that's inherent in, in a day. Yeah, of yeah. course. The, the nat natural things are typically beautiful. There's, um, it's interesting if you look at the mathematics of beauty, right? Natural things are endowed with a certain sort of, um, certain, certain order, certain yeah, order, even, even among chaotic, which, which, are, which, which we receive as an experience of beauty. See, this is something that's actually very interesting. Why is it that order is perceived as being beautiful? Why do you, why do you think that is? Why is, because that's, that's, a, that's everywhere you see that. If you see it in art, it's in symmetry. You see it in music and particular melodies you see it in mathematics as ratios and proportions? Because uh, order is is an activity. Well, yes, of course. Right? And an activity in accordance with with being, right? So, so, so would, would, would order be part of a oneness? Or does it transcend oneness and just be, we can say that it's part of being? I mean, I thought we were just establishing being as sort of an act of oneness. Okay, if if we if we made that distinction, I think that's and or and I'd say order is involved in being and therefore is part of oneness. Okay, and I mean, I I can't really talk about this. I don't know. I don't. I haven't thought about order from a philosophical standpoint. That might be a good topic for a later. Yeah, a maybe, later maybe, maybe we need to think. Order. We need to we need to wonder about that for a while. Yeah, but in the back of our heads, not actually in the back of our heads. We don't, we don't do that. But I mean, from a theological perspective, I mean, the, there's you know the idea that you know God has ordered, uh, all things are ordered in His way. He set the stars in the sky in a specific way. All things are ordained. There's sort of a divine. Providence so, with which orders the universe. So when, whenever we're talking about God's interaction or or existence within the physical realm of things, the uh, what always comes into my head is the Boethian notion of time, which, <laughs> as applied to God for uh, the lay listener, is a theory that God exists everywhere as present, and that we we can't really understand how it would be to exist apart from time because we exist solely chronologically. Uh, but the thinking is that, as an analog, we can imagine experiencing everything at the same time as, as, as we experience things presently, in the present sense, and that that's how we can imagine God would see the world and see the interactions. And so, if we take that idea, would not the order that God is instilling in the world, if we said that in vague generalities, be a measure of God's present existence in everything? A measure of God's presence. Or a, a reflection. Or a reflection. Reflection. Yeah, reflection. Yeah, measure. Not a measure. No, 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 I, don't, I don't know about that, but a reflection. But a, a participation. A participation. Or, or, or yeah. evidence of. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's where ultimately some of some of Aquinas' arguments for the existence of God come from. Uh, because it's not that, the, that God has created order in nature. It's that... God exists in nature now, just as much as he ever will in anything, 
Yeah. And that as a result of that, nature has order, or order exists because order is something that is part of or right. related to God. Right. Uh, and yeah, that, I think that that, that this, this this sort of connects everything we've talked about so far. Yeah, right? for the most part. So overall, did you have a good day? Overall, did I have a good day? Yeah, I had a great day because it existed, because it was beautiful, because I acted virtuously, because you know I praised God, because uh, I read some poetry, <laughs> so, so etc. Does, does that mean that every day is a good day? I mean, we already discussed that every day is a good day, but I think that not. I think that not every day is recognized as a good day by everyone. So, and that's part of the problem when you aren't wondering, when you aren't experiencing beauty, when you aren't, you know, comprehending reality, when you aren't receiving reality, right? You won't notice that it's good. This is true. This is true. I really did like the phrase that uh, you stole from Joseph Pieper that you're existentially disturbed. I think that modern modern Americans and, and the young today seem to feel disturbed about everything, except the transcendent. Yeah, they're disturbed at everything except for the fact that they do exist in fact. Yes, yes. Which is crazy. Yes. And so I really think this is an important message for our listeners. <laughs> that... Why are we turning every episode into moralism? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, maybe, maybe everything doesn't have to be moralistic. Yeah, but... Maybe one should be greater attuned to existential disturbances in their lives. Maybe we can just leave it at that. Yeah. That one should one should look for existential disturbances. Yeah. Be be, be disturbed. Existentially disturbed.